come to the scriptures uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, again, just our amazement and gratefulness that you've written to us. And we pray that because of that, we'll see your love to us in that. And we will trust you as God who has breathed out this word. And so I pray, Father, now that we'll hear it, be attentive to it, that you'll enable us to believe it and live it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 2 Timothy in chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want, to be, I want to read this whole chapter plus the first five verses of chapter 4. So it's a long reading, chapter 3, uh, and then through chapter 4 and verse, verse 5. Hear the word of God. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into mists. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul really, I think, wants to startle Timothy and us with his opening expression. 
He says, but understand this. In other words, everything else that I've told you, whatever else I've told you, whatever else you're thinking, I want you to really get this. Understand this. Other translations put it, realize this. You could also translate it by saying, mark this. In other words, as he's reading through the letter, if he had a highlighter, he would highlight this section because he's, Paul's saying, don't miss it. If you miss this, Timothy, then you're missing it. And perhaps even you can tell perhaps if you were able to follow as I was reading it, perhaps even still, you see, what 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 will happen, Timothy, is that you're likely to become discouraged and like others, leave the faith. Don't do that, Timothy. Understand this. I want to tell you something so vital to your life, so vital to your ministry, so vital to the ministry of the church, that if you miss this, you'll be in great danger. So what's he want to tell him? He wants to tell Timothy about the last days. Now you think for a minute how odd that now seems. If he wanted to tell Timothy about the last days, wasn't this a waste of his time? Because we're still here. Jesus didn't return. During the days of Timothy, was, was Paul mistaken? Did Paul really think that Jesus was going to return? Or was he saying, Timothy, I want you to have the mindset of one who thinks that Jesus is going to return, even though we sing now that he hasn't? Why is it that Paul wanted Timothy to know what was going to happen in the last days? Well, this, I think, because Timothy was living in the last days, as are we. You see, the last days began with the coming, most especially, and the ascension of Jesus. Ever since then, biblically speaking, the way biblical people understand these things, biblically speaking, we're living in the last days. For instance, turn to Acts and chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You notice, I'm old, so I always say turn to. I don't know how you get there on electronic devices, but if you've got to those, what do you do? Push buttons, press. I got a phone now I can talk to. So I don't know how you don't talk, though. I'm the only one that's allowed to talk right now. But however you get there, get there. Acts chapter 2, whatever kind of thing you have that has the Bible on it. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's preaching on what's known as the day of Pentecost. And there was a Pentecost... Every year in ancient Israel, obviously, it was a great ancient feast of Israel. Uh, but on this one, we call as the church the, the day of Pentecost because it was that day that the Spirit of God came upon the disciples of Jesus as Jesus had promised. And it was that day, you see, that the gospel went forth in power <clears throat> as Jesus had promised. But when Peter preaches, he quotes the prophet Joel in Acts 2. Uh, verse 15 in explaining what was going on Peter said for these people aren't drunk as you suppose they were accused of that since it's only the third hour of the day meaning about nine o'clock in the morning but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams 
even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, that is in the last days, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I shall wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what Peter is saying about what was happening on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came is that this is what Joel said was going to happen in the last days. Right? In those, in those last days. Hebrews and chapter 1. The author of Hebrews uh, speaks like this. Verse 1, he says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days... He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world and so forth. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, we're in these days, these last days. It's these last days wherein Jesus is the one who speaks to us and who's the one being spoken, being spoken of. In Second Peter in chapter 3, in verse 1, Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's what scoffers do. Following their own sinful desires. Now, the point is that these scoffers existed... And we're scoffing during the days of Peter. And Peter's saying, well, this is what I expect. Because scoffers like this will come in the last days. So here we are in the last days. You see, as we read through the scripture, we find, especially in the Old Testament, that time was kept like this. There is this age, and then there's the age which is to come. The thought was that the age that is to come was the age of the Messiah. And so when Jesus showed up, everyone thought that this is indeed the age that is to come. And thus, in some sense it is. But but there's an overlap that may or may not have really been expected. You remember John the Baptist was quite confused about Jesus and his coming. And he was in prison. Now we often get, I suppose, I suppose if I were arrested for my faith i might get confused about things at that point but but john was confused he he thought well if the messiah is here why am i in prison because if this is the age that is to come i hadn't expected prison right i expected the rule of the messiah and so jesus you remember sent back word and he said well tell john what what you see and they say well we see the lame walk we see the blind heal we we see the deaf uh, now here and and the lepers cleanse and all of that and so John would get it, oh yes, this is the age of the Messiah. But, 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 but what really then does, does that mean? That these men, as we call them, who are on the road to Emmaus, after the crucifixion of Jesus, were wondering, what does all this mean? We thought that this Jesus was the Messiah, but, but he got killed. And there's Jesus, of course, walking along with him. I suppose with a bit of a smile. And there he was, you see, about to explain to them about the age and the age that is to come and this present age. In fact, you remember the disciples themselves when they met with Jesus right before his ascension. 
We see this in Acts in chapter 1. In verse 6, Jesus had told them to, to wait in Jerusalem and all of that, and the Holy Spirit would come, and they'd be baptized with the Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, uh, uh, Luke writes, uh, So when they had come together, they asked him, that is Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, they said, all right, the Messiah's come. He's done his work. He's died and, and, and now been raised, which rather surprised us, but now been raised. And, and so you're speaking of the Spirit coming. So this must be it. This must be the age that is to come. And, 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 and Jesus gave them kind of an non-answer, which is, don't worry about that. Just get on with what I'm about to do, what I'm about to tell you. Uh, and, and, and so the question is, what about this age and this age that is to come? Well... There's a sense in which we're in this age. There's a sense in which right now we're still, we're, we're actually in the age that is to come. And they overlap. And a day will come when the age that is to come will come in all of its, in all of its fullness, you see. When the kingdom will be consummated. Now, how can we, how can we really talk like this? Well, we know that when Jesus has come, when the Messiah has come, the kingdom of God on earth has been inaugurated. We can say it like that. You know, when we inaugurate a president, this chief executive, if you will, uh, his term begins. And, and, and there it goes from there. We call that the inauguration. Well, the inauguration has come. Jesus has come. The decisive battle has been won. Most certainly, at the cross, the decisive battle was won. But in the wisdom of God... Jesus now is in glory ruling and reigning and interceding for us. Of course, his spirit is here with us. And now we live in the midst of sin still here. And the kingdom of God now comes by way of the gospel transforming people's lives. This declaration of this, this, this good news that says that the king has come and he rules and reigns over sin and death. That's the good news. When that takes hold of a person's life, the kingdom of God is there in power. And Jesus then rules and reigns in that person's life, if you will. That's the manifestation primarily of the kingdom in these days is this gospel taking grip and taking hold of a person's, a person's life. A day will come when we'll see it. And it will be in its fullness, the kingdom. That will come when Jesus returns. And, and thus, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, John sees that in Revelation in 21, chapter 21, uh, verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be them with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So we need to get it. We need to understand so that we're not discouraged. The context of this life. Yes, Jesus had come. Jesus has come. Yes, the Messiah has come. Yes, the decisive blow has been dealt. But there's still trouble. And there's still difficulty. And if we don't know that, if we're not expecting that, in Timothy's context as pastor in this church in Ephesus, in Timothy's context as pastor in the church in Ephesus, who's now being called by Paul to leave that place and go to Rome where Paul's in prison, 
Timothy, if you don't get that there's still times of difficulty and you're expecting all of that to have gone away, you're going to become discouraged and frustrated, maybe to the point of swerving from the truth as others have. And so, so he's giving him a heads up, if you will. He's saying, listen, I want you to understand. Here's what it means to live in these days. And in fact, Jesus knew this would be difficulty. So he, he told various parables. Various parables about a king has come or a prince has come or someone has come and they're going to be for a while. Then go away, then come back. In fact, he introduces one of these parables called the parables of the minas. The parable of the minas have kind of given way to the parable of the talents. It's a very similar parable. Somehow we like the parable of the talents better. I don't know why. Uh, but a mina, not a minnow, which is a little fish, but a mina is a month's wage. And so it's a story about how someone has come. This, this manager has come and given various amounts of mina to uh, various ones. And then he goes away and comes back and so forth. But he introduces, Jesus does this parable in Luke 19 like this. And he says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was, because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Well, in one sense, the kingdom of God was among them in Jesus but he would leave. His spirit would come. His word and spirit then would go as this good news and the very power of God to bring the kingdom, if you will, so that people could receive this rule of God over sin and death in them. But it doesn't come in its fullness. It isn't here in the same sense that it will be upon the return of Jesus when he comes back and when there is a new heavens and a new earth. And so as we live here, it's necessary for us to get this, to understand this. And so Paul writes to Timothy and says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I don't want you to get caught short. Again, Jesus followed this same way of dealing with his disciples. You might remember on the night that he was betrayed, he met with his disciples and he told them a number of things. He told them about the fact that they were likely to be persecuted because people would come against them because they hated Jesus. He told them also about the coming of the Spirit to help them in these times of difficulty. But, 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 but bear in mind, he was very honest about the times in which they would live. And here's why, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1 of John's Gospel. Jesus said, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. I don't want you to get so discouraged over what it looks like that you're thinking I'm not sovereign, that you're thinking I'm not king, that you're thinking the Messiah hasn't come, that you forget about all of that. I, I want to tell you these things so you don't fall away. You don't get tricked. In Greek, the little word for, for, for falling away is scandalized. I've shared this before, but, but um, you can understand that word scandalized or being tricked or, or, or falling away, however you want to put it, like this. I don't know. When I was a little kid, uh, not too tech savvy, not too tech anything because there wasn't much tech. But we used to try to catch squirrels. 
And the way you'd catch a squirrel in those days was to get a box and a stick. And you'd tie a rope to the stick. And you'd put some squirrel food, that is, whatever it is that your mother didn't see you, you know, getting out of the kitchen with. So you put some squirrel food under the box, stick up, you know, picture that. Box up, stick there. You go and you hide until a squirrel comes into the box. And then the plan is that once that happens, you pull the rope and the stick falls and you get your squirrel. You never do because squirrels are not only not that stupid probably, but but they're also fast. But in Greek, if you're a little Greek boy and you were looking for a stick, you would call it a scandalitza. You would call it that which will scandalize this squirrel because he won't be expecting it and when he's there I'm going to trick him and all the other squirrels are going to say he was really crazy to keep us from having the stick pulled and us being caught to keep Timothy from such discouragement that he might stop being the pastor of that church might stop being an evangelist might stop doing that which God has called him to do. Paul says, I want you to know the real truth. I want you to know the reality of what will happen in the last days. That is, in these days in which we live. That is, in these days since the ascension of Jesus until his return. So this floods not only Timothy's life, but ours as well until Jesus comes back. We're in these last days. Now, if you're a reader of Scripture, you may get the impression, and I think this is not a wrong one, you may get the impression that things actually uh, get worse before they get better. That is, that we see this apostasy, if you will, increasing in that may well be true, but true or not, the truth of the matter is that still within the life in which we live, there are difficulties. Notice the difficulties that Timothy will face. Verse 2, he says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, Paul saying to Timothy, he says to us as well, when you see this, don't think that the gospel has failed. Remember the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy right before this, end of chapter 2. He said, listen, and there are those who oppose you, rebuke them, teach them, but with gentleness and humility, because God may grant repentance to them and break the bondage that they have to the evil one. And now Paul says, however, that's not going to happen with everybody. And so when you see this kind of evil continuing in the world, don't think that the gospel has failed. Hang on. And in fact, he's going to use an expression in, in chapter 4, verse 5, which is why I read that far, because I want to capture this expression. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. That is to say, as some translations have it, Timothy, always keep your head about you. Make sure you're savvy. Make sure you're aware of what this means and doesn't mean. And so when you see evil in the world, don't think the gospel has failed. Don't think that Jesus hasn't come. Don't think the Messiah isn't ruling and reigning. Don't think the age that that was to come didn't come in some sense in him and isn't coming in its fullness someday. Don't give up. Keep your head. Now, interestingly, Paul was about to lose his. 
literally, or he'd be killed. And so we're even to be able to keep our heads when we're losing our head, if that is our demise. Even while Paul was in prison, he was saying, Timothy, get this, don't stop. This is simply the way that it is. And so even though I'm about to die, lose my head, keep yours. And I'll keep mine even as I'm losing mine because I understand. I understand that Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's still sovereign and he will come again. And when he comes again, all of this will come in its fullness and we'll see it. Don't give up now. Nothing, I suppose, more disheartening to anyone who loves people and loves God than to see people continue to rebel against him. We know in the context of our own lives how we, how we do that, but, but we're quickened by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we come and we say, that's wrong, and so we confess our sins. Again, that's why we do this corporately every Sunday um, uh, and very deliberately now. In the early days of our church, we didn't do it so deliberately. We had others lead us in these confessions. Now we do it more deliberately. It doesn't really matter which way we do it, but, but the point is to acknowledge that, yes, we sin. We get that. And we receive the forgiveness of Jesus and walk in him. See, that's, that's the gospel. That, that's a manifestation of the kingdom of God. That's this realization that he does rule and reign, that he has conquered sin and death, you see. I go, yes, that's true. I see it in the context of scripture. I see it in the context of my own life. But when we see this rebellion, whether it's our children or our spouses or friends, even as we see the misery that sin has caused, and we think, don't we? Jesus, why don't you fix this? It's painful to watch. It's hard to live in. Why aren't there more of us? Why don't we see more come to faith? Why don't we see a great revival as we've read about in history from time to time? Why don't we see whole cities come to faith? Why don't we see this? Well, you know, we might. But if we don't, he says, listen, I'm telling you now about real life. It would be those who are the lovers of self, as he puts it, that seek their own pleasures, enslaved to their own passions, listen to their own wisdom, and won't listen to the wisdom of God. Lovers of money, of course. They'll love that which can satisfy their own passions. Proud, arrogant. Yes, of course, there's self-worship and and boastfulness because, you see, I must show and validate my life by showing you what I have and what I've what I've achieved and, and become abusive because you see if anybody gets in their way then they'll, they'll abuse them or, or they'll take in such a way whether it's sexual or physical or material or, or, or in terms of status whatever it is they'll, they'll take that from them in order to satisfy their own passions disobedient to parents that's an interesting one thrown in there isn't it but you see what that means is that if we will not obey those God has put before us to lovingly discipline us and lovingly lead us. And that's great rebellion. Not to listen, not to obey parents. Ungrateful. Years ago, someone asked me, what is the one characteristic you, you desire to embed in your children? 
And I remember saying, gratefulness. That's it, you think. If we can be grateful. What does that say about a person who's grateful? A grateful person is a humble person. A grateful person realizes that they've been given, given something that they don't really deserve. And they're, they're thankful for that. They, they look to others and they say, thank you for that. What a great attribute to say, to be grateful. But you see, ungratefulness is systemic in sin, you see. It just blossoms from it. Because sin says, no, I'm capable, I can do it. I I thank no one, I'm self-sufficient. Unholy, no regard for the things of God. Heartless, uncaring, not really uh, caring about the needs of others, only caring about oneself. Now, now the danger here, of course, as, as Paul will put it at the end, they have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, it's, 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 it's very easy for us to, to look as if none of these are true, when in fact all of these are true. Because we have an enlightened self-interest. We say, oh, if I live like this, people will like me better. If I live like this, then I'll get more. If I live like this, then people will trust me and I can take from them. If I live in a good way, you see, having the appearance of godliness. If I live like that, then, but it's all for the wrong reasons. So Paul goes on through his, his list and he says to Timothy, it's going to be frustrating to you as a pastor. It's going to be frustrating church to live in a community. It's going to be frustrating as you come up against such things. But... But avoid them in the sense of avoid being discouraged by them. He says these very people will come uh, among various households and try to capture them. Capture weak women as it puts here the problem in Ephesus. But weak people, people burdened with their own sins and, and lead them astray by various passions. By saying, listen, if you follow me, if you follow this teaching, which isn't the teaching of God. If you follow this, then, then your passions will be satisfied. And we see that all the time. If your passion is for health, you can find a church. If your passion is for wealth, you can find a church. If your, if your passion is sexual expression, you can find a church that will validate all of those for you. And for Timothy, who's there trying to preach the truth, and for a church in Ephesus trying to live this out, the real gospel of Jesus, And you see how discouraging that can be if it's unexpected. You say, God, I told them the truth. They didn't believe it. God, God, we've been living the truth. They don't believe it. Well, we've been warned that this is the last days. This is the time in which we live. This is what this will look like. Always learning, never being able to arrive at the truth. That's who they are. Then in chapter 4, he puts it like this. He says, well, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but, will have itching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turn away from listening to the truth, wander off in the midst. Thus, as I said, you can always find a church to meet, to reach your own, your own passion. So, so what's Timothy to do? Uh, what's the antidote to this? Well, well, first, of course, you get to know that this is true and expect it. And so when it happens, not to, not to float away. But he says, for instance, in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, you, however, or could be translated, but as for you, he says, you've watched me, Timothy. You've watched my example. You've seen how I've lived. You've seen me as an apostle. And these things have happened to me, persecution and otherwise, and people turning away from the gospel. So, so Timothy, get it, understand that it's been happening and it's going to continue. So 
So go to school on my own example. But then in verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. In other words, Paul, uh, Timothy, you've learned this from me, Paul the Apostle. Don't you know that all scripture then is God-breathed? So there's a sense in which Paul is saying, that which I've taught you, which I've written, is scripture. We know that Paul understood that uh, about, about himself. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And we also uh, thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul told the church in Thessalonica, when I taught, you received it as the very word of God, which it is. And so there you go. Paul, Paul got it. Peter understood that what, what Paul was, was writing was the scripture as well. For instance, in Second Peter In chapter 3, in verse 15, Peter writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are of some things, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. In other words, you've got Paul's scriptures and the other scriptures, Paul's scriptures being scriptures. So he's saying to Timothy, here's what you need to do. Here's what we need to do. We need to continue in that which we've learned. That which we've learned from the scripture. For it's God-breathed. It comes from him. You must bank on it. Bank on scripture. That which is true from God. And nothing else. That's why as a church we're not about us. We're about the scripture when we began, this church began, we began by saying we're going to establish the word of God among people. We're to plant it. Firm it up. Because in times of difficulty it won't help you so much to say, well, Bill once told me. If Bill once told you the scripture and you remember that, oh, that will help you. But if it's simply my idea, trust me, my ideas don't help me much. It's just that which has been God-breathed. We need it, you see. So what happens when difficult times come? What happens to us? What enables us, as he puts it in verse 5, to keep our heads it's when we know that which has been God breathed we began our service today by singing a hymn a mighty fortress is is our God written by Martin Luther the great reformer of course he wrote it in response to his meditations upon Psalm 46 you know Luther was in trouble a lot and he was in trouble by not only with not only kings but popes, and they were after him. And he spent time in exile and so forth and so on. And he would meditate on the truth. 
I mean, mean, think about that life. Here he is trying to to say that which is true from the scripture and the church itself is coming against him. So, So how could he keep from discouragement? And he kept from discouragement, of course, by going to that which was God breathed, going to that which he knew was true, going to the scripture. In fact, there'd be times when he would say to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, he would say, the times are tough, come with me and let us sing together Psalm 46. And so they would, they would sing it and Luther wrote this hymn from it, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He says, oh, yes, I can count on that. Well, why? Because he knew this, verse 1 of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. He says, listen, if everything that we trust being secure and being firm and holding us up and enabling us to live, if all that goes away, what do we got? I mean, notice how he puts it here. He says, we're not going to be afraid even though the earth gives way. Those of you who've been in real earthquakes are right now feeling that again. Because that's not a feeling I've been told you ever get over. Because you take for granted that the earth isn't going to shake. But when it starts shaking, you wonder what else is going to fall apart. Everything that we know, and and, and you've been there in real life, not in a physical earthquake, but in an, an emotional one, in a financial one, in a relational one, in an occupational one. And you wonder what's going to happen next. Is anybody watching this store? Is, is anybody looking over this thing? Is anybody controlling this life in which we live? And, 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 and God says, I am. I'm your refuge and, and, and strength. I'm a very help. I'm your help in time of trouble. Don't be afraid. He says, verse 4, don't you know there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will, be, will, will help her when morning dawns. He says, listen, there is, there's a river that, that doesn't destroy, doesn't flood, doesn't soak up the mountains, but blesses. God says, I'm in the midst of that. Come to me. Verse 6, what about the nations? Nature has trouble. What about the nations? The nations raise, the kingdoms totters, but God's sovereign over them. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so God invites us. He says, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. In other words, God says, listen, I get it. I understand what's happening on the face of the earth, but you church be still. Be still. Some versions have relax. Some versions have cease striving. Be still. If you ask my kids the first word that comes out of my mouth, when trouble comes, I always say, relax. And they think I'm just trying to control them, but I'm just trying to think of Scripture. Because I got the same vibes going through me that they have going through them at the time. And so I say, no, 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 Bill, relax. Cease striving. Who is in control here? Where's God on the throne? Where's Jesus ruling and reigning? Where's the Holy Spirit? He's among us. Whew. Okay. 
That's our little catechism of a family. When trouble comes, where's God on the throne? Where's Jesus? He's ruling and reigning. Where is the Holy Spirit? He's among us. Okay. All right. Understand it in that context. Be still and know that I am God. And then he gives us this promise. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. In other words, you don't see me now, but the time will come when I'm the one who will be exalted. All you'll see is me and everything that's true of me. You'll see it. You'll see it. Wait. So be still right now because that really is coming. Timothy, even in the midst of your ministry and all that comes against you, don't lose your head. Why? Because you can be still. How? Because you know that God is God. And then he says this, the Lord of hosts is with us. That's Luther's expression, Lord Sabaoth, his name. The Lord of hosts, his armies are there. The God of Jacob is our fortress, and it's wonderful who he says the God of Jacob. He could say the God of Moses. He could say the God of Abraham. He could say the God of Isaac. He could say the God and Father of, if it's were New Testament, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says the God of Jacob. You know, Jacob was a rascal. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob had no right to the birthright. But God saved him. And we think about the context of our own lives. The God of Bill, the God of Jacob, it's the same. And thus, I'm secure in him. Thus, we read today, Romans chapter 8. Because you see, that's our comfort and our hope always in the midst of of difficulty. Because Paul begins there by telling us in this great mystery how it is that we came to belong to God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, you see, even when the mountains are shaking, we know that God will exalt himself in such a way in such a day that will bring good. And so he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called and called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, this is a work of God. Trust him. So what are we then to say to these things? What are we to say? to any accusers that come before us. Well, we say this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance, when difficult times come, the first question should, shouldn't be, well, oh, I have no answer, or what should I say? It should be the answer that is this, that if God is for us, then who can be against us? And how do we know that he's for us? Well, he didn't spare his own son. I mean, if he's going to, this is the logic of the gospel, if he's going to give his own son for us, that which is most valuable for, to him, don't you think everything else will come along with it? If he's going to give us Jesus, why wouldn't he give us everything else? If he gives us Jesus, why, why will you withhold anything else? So Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, along with him, graciously, not graciously, give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elected as the ones God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Well... Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Well, then, if he won't condemn, then who will condemn? No one. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? 
Even though we're being killed all the day long, he says, like sheep to the slaughter, nothing yet, nothing still can keep us from the love of Christ. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, death, depth, and then the catch-all, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We live in the last days. Thus, we expect not only to see the kingdom of God rule and reign in the lives of people, but also times of difficulty. And we needn't fear. Why? Because the God of Jacob is with us. We needn't fear. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know that he's for us? Well, he gave us Jesus. That should satisfy. Be still. Cease striving. Trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us. That we'd get it, that we wouldn't be snookered, that we would trust you and live in peace. Enable us, Father, not to turn away from that which is true because we see that which is evil. But that you, in your God-breathed scripture, have given us all that we need to trust and to be still. Help us. Pray that, God, for those who are going through great difficulties in relationships, financially, heartbreak of those they love not being believers. Pray that for those going through difficult things for Scott and Emily, Father, as they face tomorrow. Miguel Rubison as he faces this cancer for others. Father, Cause your scripture breathed out to breathe into us faith, confidence in you that we may live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.